Welcome to Laugh Your Cry Out, an audio-video podcast hosted by me, Joey Dumont, a lifelong storyteller and author of my own memoir, Joey Somebody, The Life and Times of a Recovering Douchebag. On my show, I invite my guests to laugh along with me at the absurdity of our cultural divide in society's most complex and talked about subjects. As a media executive who spent the past two decades reviewing the nuance of language and messaging, I use my love of words to help resolve conflict and find common ground. I speak with subject matter experts in the world of media, business, politics, and academia who, like me, have no interest in bashing opponents simply for the sake of ratings, but rather have a real interest in discussing topics like media bias, safe spaces, critical race theory, classism, and defunding the police. The collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You might even learn a thing or two. Thank you, young man, for coming on the show. And uh, I guess we should probably start out with it, introducing the audience to how we met. We have never met in person, so nice to meet you on, on camera. Yeah. And uh, we met on Facebook through mutual friends. One of my high school acquaintances, Tim, I think, was the connective tissue there. And uh, we, we've been kind of jockeying back and forth for a couple, three years, maybe. And I get to witness how you think and, and where you come from. I've been trying to frame a lot of these discussions around kind of the four tenets of our political body. There's liberals like myself, which you at least for sure qualify. There's progressives like Zachary, Kim, who I interviewed, uh, who's farther left than I am. And then there's like old Eisenhower, Reagan Republicans. I have lots of friends in that camp. And then I have friends that are Trumpers. So there's kind of like four factions there. And based on the discussion that we're going to have today, where do you kind of put yourself? I know you don't want to necessarily identify yourself as one camp, but are you liberal leaning a little more left than that? Or where do you kind of see yourself just so that it helps out with our discussion? Yeah, it's one of those interesting things where, you know, I think I, I don't like titles and I think most people don't like titles. Having said that, titles are a thing for a reason because they describe attributes that you fit into, right? Yeah. So while I, I generally don't self-identify as a liberal, I probably would qualify as one if you laid me on like a political map where I, I would probably put myself as a, a left-leaning libertarian. So I, I come out as very liberal on certain topics, but not necessarily all topics. My, my core tenant, I think that how you can describe like 99% of my political philosophy is I think that people should have the freedom to do whatever they want in so far as they are not harming another person. So I'm a huge proponent of freedom and autonomy up until the point where you're harming someone else. And as soon as you harm someone else, then I'm a big proponent of the government or whatever getting in between you and saying, hey, you gotta stop that. Got it, perfect. That's, well, that that's helps my and that's, political philosophy in a nutshell. I kind of learned that. I have a lot of libertarian buddies as well. So I, I, I kind of understand where they sit. And we're, what kind of sparked this uh, me inviting you on the show was that we were talking about Jordan Peterson uh, on your feed. And there was a bunch of friends kind of commenting back and forth about postmodernism, the C-16 bill, uh, yeah. which was the British common law bill that mandated compelled speech around pronouns. And that was a 
that was, I guess we should probably start there too. So the fact that we're going to be talking about Jordan Peterson, I will admit that I am a huge fan and I've read all of his books. I've probably watched well over a hundred hours of his lectures uh, from everything to do with his interviews around his books to his religious lectures. Um, I'm not a religious person, but as a recovering Catholic, I really wanted to understand what he thought um, specific to like his Genesis and his, his, cause he seems to be a very religious man um, even though he doesn't really categorize himself as such. But what I'm fascinated with him about in part is the polarization that he creates within our culture. Mm -hmm. And I agree with about 80% of the stuff that he says. And then the 20% I disagree with, I think he almost likes to poke the tiger. So I think there's pieces of him that like to be uh, controversial on purpose. And I think that's kind of where you and I started chatting mm -hmm. specific to him was that you thought he was insincere with his take on the C-16 bill. Um, and I, I think that's actually where Jordan Peterson got famous too, or infamous, depending on how you want to look at it. Right. That took place in 2015 or 2016. And again, let me just be specific. It was a, there's a pronoun thing going around our culture in the Western culture in general with trans people wanting to be identified with their preferred pronouns. And historically, Jordan Peterson, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, has referred to his students as they, them, Zezer, whatever they wanted to be called. But when this new C-16 bill came into legislation with British common law and they passed it, and, I, and I have, I've looked at it, but I'm not versed in it at a legal easement way, was that it, did, it mandated compelled speech of pronouns for professors. And if you didn't do so, there was you know, some punitive damages. Um, and so he was very upset about that. And he went public, he walked out <clears throat> onto the campus, held a rally, if you will, and said that he would not call anyone anything based on compelled speech legislation. And that if he was, he would go to jail first and then he would have a hunger strike if they put him in jail. Right. And he does rest on this free speech piece and then I think also what we were talking about online was there's a lot of Steven Pinker is a big proponent of this. Dr. Jonathan Haidt, Greg Lukanioff, other thinkers like Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, this kind of whole intellectual dark web, if you will, is what they're referred mm -hmm. to. All of these big thinkers, professors, academics, mathematicians. Uh, he aligns with a lot of those folks. But that's actually why I was so attracted to you intellectually is that I watch you go back and forth and you too have a varied crowd so you have people on the right and the left just like mm -hmm. i do and we don't neither one of us engage in ad homonyms which is another reason that i respect you but that is exactly it you are kind of a public philosopher and you're curious you're always curious so you're posing questions constantly um you're asking your crowd your friends you know what do you guys think of this what do you think of that and that's okay. that's another reason i thought we would have a lot of fun uh because as an older man i'm trying to figure out your generation in general. And I think the pronoun thing is one of them. Mm -hmm. And this woke culture, if you will, is another big discussion we can get into because I think that's kind of the meta narrative around all of that. Right. But why don't you tell me what you think of the C-16 bill and Jordan Peterson's reaction to it? Yeah, so I, I think one of the most important things to, to kind of preface this with is that I, I think 99% of people are, as you described, they're very polarized by Jordan Peterson in the sense that they really like yeah. him or they really don't like him. And yeah. I see myself as 
as mostly that 1% that kind of falls somewhere in between. Um, I, I don't think Jordan Peterson is a fantastic thinker, nor do I think he is a super poor thinker that's like a plague to society or anything like that. Yeah. I'm kind of somewhere in between. I think he's, he's really hit or miss. It, it depends on the topic. I think that um, Peterson probably has a lot of great commentary uh, in the psychological area, although I'm not sure because I'm not a trained psychologist, but the things that he says in psychology are compelling to me. Um, and he has wonderful commentary on like self-help advice. Um, yeah. I have also read quite a few of his books and, you know, 12 rules for life is one of the better self-help bo self-help books that I've ever read. Um, I think that okay. it has great value for people that are kind of lost or not entirely sure where to go with the direction in their life. Having said that, Jordan Peterson is perhaps the best example I've ever seen of someone who is susceptible to what is broadly known as the Nobel effect. So the Nobel effect is when someone, they win a Nobel Peace Prize in a specific category, right? It's usually very specific, not just chemistry or physics, but like a really narrow slice of chemistry or physics. And then the media goes, that person is brilliant. Let's ask his or her opinion on economics Everything. or you know, <laughs> right. foreign trade or you know, what to do about the war in Iraq. And unfortunately, most of those Nobel winners, um, it, they let it go to their head and they think, I probably have a great perspective on that. And so they comment on something that's entirely out of their field of training and they more often than not sound ridiculous. They just make really, really basic mistakes where it's like, oh my gosh, it's not just that your perspective is uninformed. It's that you reflect that you don't even um, know the fundamentals of that topic in your commentary on it. And I think, unfortunately, Jordan Peterson does that a lot and on more than one topic, too. Um, a good example of that is in 12 Rules for Life, he has this passage, and he talks about this outside of 12 Rules for Life, too, where he says, you know, um, people will say that they're an atheist. No, you're not. You believe in, you know, meaning and value in your life. And so what he's implying, sorry for my terrible Jordan Peterson. That's okay. It's not bad. Um, he, what he is implying there is that atheists don't believe in meaning or morality or right. value, which is so insanely philosophically naive, it's almost hard to put into words. The majority of philosophers of ethics are atheists. The majority of philosophers of ethics that are atheists are moral realists in the sense that they believe in objective morality and objective value. So it's like almost all of the experts that are atheists believe in meaning and value. And yet you just implied that being an atheist is tautologically equal to having no meaning or value or morality. So it's like you don't know the first thing about atheism as it connects to morality. Another good example of this is Jordan Peterson in um, debating communism. He says that uh, in regards to Marx's commentary on exploitation, he says that a boss would be foolish to exploit his workers. And he goes on to describe this scenario where it's like, oh, if a boss mistreats his workers and is cruel to them, that their workers are going to be less productive and that they're going to leave and that he will thus not profit. And in that, he reflects that he hasn't even read the basics of Marx. Like he doesn't even know Marx 101 because on Marx's theory, exploitation is not a reference to treating your customer or your employees in some diabolical way. Exploitation is a reference to um, if an employee provides you with $30 per hour of labor value and you pay them with $20 per hour of labor value, that the employer thus extracts $10 
per hour of labor value as what is commonly known in most economic systems as the surplus value. It is the cornerstone of capitalism. The capitalist puts forward um, capital investment in the form of resources and funding and the employees come and work, they work for less than they are able to produce necessarily, allowing the capitalist to extract surplus value from the worker. This is known on Marxism as exploitation. It's not a reference to being diabolical or mean, it's a reference to the cornerstone of capitalism. So when Peterson says that a boss would be foolish to exploit people and then goes on to describe something diabolical, he reveals that he literally doesn't know the first thing about Marxism. And yet he talks about Marxism all the time. And I think that it's foolish for people to speak on topics that they don't know a lot about, much less know next to nothing about. And unfortunately, I think Peterson does that a lot. So it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, when Peterson stays in his lane, I think he's a positive force for the for the world. But he often is outside of his lane. And that's when he kind of makes a fool of himself. Um, right, well, I, I agree with a lot of that. And, and I specifically agree with the, the piece he talks about with the morality being tied to religion. I think that where he goes sideways there is that doesn't take long for an academic. He could read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and he'd be proven wrong right there, right? So it doesn't matter. And that was the whole book that kind of spurred FDR and and getting you know some labor rules and trying to not actually exploit their workers. What I what I can actually glom onto as someone who's been in the media world for the last twenty years is he's right in the sense that if you treat your employees at the professional level, the advertising agency as an example, which is my realm, they will leave you to go to another company. So I think he's right on that. But to your point, Absolutely. I think. And his moral relativism specific to that, this is also what we talked about. Um, one of your buddies and I were going back and forth on this because he said the same thing, that he hasn't done his homework on Marx. And that's, I can't debate that because the, the stuff that I've watched from his class is that he mocks the manifesto and he said he's read it, but I don't know exactly, you know, because that's a very small piece of Marxism. But the idea there is that his understanding of communism and world history runs very deep. So he's read, and, and the reason that I read the Gulag Archipelago was because of him. I didn't right. really know who he was. I didn't know who Stolisnitians was before that. I didn't understand the level of depravity specific to communism. I mean, we right. studied it in history, but I didn't really understand the Gulags of the 30s. I didn't understand the murder. I didn't understand the oppression. I didn't understand any of that until. So to me, that's where his passion comes from, specific right. to communism, is that he has Russian relics in his house right. when you walk into his front and he's draped in that history. And as you know, he's a very uh, porous man. So he absorbs. And this is my opinion. He absorbs negative information differently. He's often weepy. You know, when he talks, he gets very emotional. Yeah. I genuinely believe that he thinks that communism is the worst flavor of any system ever indoctrinated into our culture. And I think that's where that comes from for me. And I think that he, I think you're right. I think he's sincere in that. And, and here's the thing. I think he might even be right about that. Um, I think that his knowledge of, of the crimes of communism throughout history is probably far superior to his knowledge of Marxism. The problem, 
is, is that he conflates the two constantly. He basically yeah. says, look, communism did this bad thing. Therefore, we can attribute that criticism to Marxism directly. And that just does not work at all. That would be like saying, I am an expert historian in the Crusades. Look how bad the Crusades are. And I know how bad the Crusades are. Therefore, that's also how bad Christianity is. Correct. That would never work. That, I mean, that, that's a completely illogical leap. And he's doing the exact same thing. Marxist philosophy and the evils of communism have some relation, but they are not the same thing. In fact, there's a pretty big chasm between them. And I should qualify all of this, by the way. I should have said this at the beginning. I'm not a Marxist or a communist nor anything close. I'm a huge uh, proponent of free trade philosophy. I don't believe in unfettered capitalism, but I'm a big fan of capitalism. So I'm not saying all of this stuff as a defense of Marxism. I'm saying that people should not criticize Marxism before they understand Marxism. I agree with that. And so I think that, and I had this chat with uh, Zachary too, a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours online. And we talked about, he is a communist, he self-proclaimed, sure. as are a lot of the younger people um, of your generation. And I don't, I think they do have a different meaning to it. I think that when they attach socialism, the Marxist, and again, I am not a scholar on Marx either. I've read, I don't know, four or five books on it and watch lectures on it. So I'm definitely, you know, I'm on the cursory of knowledge there. But what I do understand, and I've read a lot of Richard Wolff, and Richard Wolff is a professor who teaches Marxism and, and is a big fan. And so I'm trying to figure out like, what am I missing? Because the question that I have for everyone, and maybe you've heard this from your, your generation, is that for me, the whole idea of socialism, because we have, we are as a culture, a mixed market where capitalist structure with some socialistic tendencies. And so those things work. And so for me as a capitalist, I'm like, yeah, no. And I'm with you. I, I think capitalism is a Ferrari and we need to make sure we have brakes. And currently we don't have brakes. So mm -hmm. that's, that's just kind of my thing. And so I'm always like, I, I, I agree with you. We need to help our less fortunate. I agree with you. The inequality is a mess. I agree with you here this, but the one question that has never been answered correctly, not even correctly, it's never been answered is how do you implement right. this communist vision? I mean, he, Jordan Peterson calls it the utopian vision, as do most people who argue against it. The question I have is what, how do you unplug private property from the wealthiest Americans? Right. Because yeah, that's the question. And if you can't answer that question, then there is no reason to discuss even possibility of communism or socialism, right? Right. And it's, it's one of these things where I, 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 I don't claim to be an expert in Marx either, but I have read quite a bit about him and, and his, his philosophy and his criticisms. I think Marx's criticisms of capitalism are actually quite brilliant. Um, and I, I do too. Shame that, our, that our society um, kind of dismisses anything that he says, because I think his criticisms of capitalism are really, really good and we should, we should take heed of them. Where Marx, I think, strongly misses the boat is he doesn't really provide an alternative or at least not a working no. No. Um, and so it's one of those things where it's like, you know, capitalism bad in ways X, Y, and Z is like, yep, that's true. And we need right. to do something about it. But he doesn't really give any sort of solution or at least not a viable one as to how to solve those things. Now, our friend Zach might disagree with me on that, but I, you know, I, I, I have serious issues with the recommendations that Marx has for how he would go about solving those things. So it's, I'm caught in this weird place where it's like brilliant, brilliant author. Um, offers a ton of value in terms of economic discourse, but 
saying those things does not make one a communist because I don't think that we should adopt any of his proposed solutions because I think that they would probably be worse than the thing they're attempting to cure. Yeah, exactly. And that's my thing around the private property piece because that's right. where the murder comes in, right? It's right. not that it's a necessary evil. And it's, that's, I think that's also where Jordan goes crazy. And so we could, we could just agree there that I think that he has yet to really because he actually argued, it was a good lecture with him on uh, Professor Zizek on this, who was a Marxist uh, intellectual. And mm-hmm. that was like a two and a half hour lecture. And they actually agreed far more than they disagreed. And I mm-hmm. think that Jordan kind of got into more of the intellectual side of that. And they so they were polite to one another and it worked out really well. But that was very similar. And then the same thing around the moral, the moral relativism when he had that three-part debate with Sam Harris, mm-hmm. who was an atheist, intellectual, neuroscience, you know, right. neuroscientist. And I loved that because that was a really neat debate uh, specific to that. So let's, let's just do this. On the kind of now that we get a piece of who Peterson is, he's kind of this public intellectual now. Yeah, C-16. You know, Sorry, we got off of that. No, no, no. It's okay. There's plenty of derivatives there. But the, the idea then is that he... Let me say this. I think that part of this venom around C-16 stems from his, he has the same hate for postmodernism that he does for communism. Mm -hmm. And so his definition of postmodernism is that the meta-narrative out there is that institutions and canonical stories are no longer relevant in social sciences, specific to the universities, Mm -hmm. and that the lack of viewpoint diversity in the university systems, uh, some of the numbers in social science are 14 to one on mm-hmm. liberals versus conservatives. So that's a big oh, that, push. That actually sounds low to me. I would have expected it to have been much Okay, higher. it might be higher now. And this that data comes yeah. from Dr. Height, uh, his book, The Coddling of the American Mind. He goes right. pretty big into what that was. And Dr. Height and Jordan are buddies and they often talk. Steven Pinker obviously talks about all this. And I just wanted to frame that in the postmodern discussion because I think the C-16 bill around lack of canonical, lack of meta narrative, all of those pieces I think play into his passion around defending free speech. Right. Yeah, so <laughs> that's- I guess I would say that, I think that if, if Jordan Peterson's purported understanding of C-16 were accurate, I would agree with him. But the way that he gives his understanding of C-16 is wrong. Um, I I have done a pretty big legal dive into C-16 and not just myself, but looked at um, extensive legal analysis from legal experts. Here's the thing. It is not compelled speech. And I don't think that I can say that slowly enough. It is not compelled speech. Jordan Peterson is under the impression that C-16 forces you to use the pronouns that someone wants. That is incorrect. What C-16 says is something more like, you cannot harass someone via using the pronouns that they do not want. So it is a compulsion to not harass people. It is not a compulsion to do anything. And there's a big difference there because in, in legal systems, compelling someone to do X is very different than compelling someone to not do X. Generally, the standard for compelling someone to do something is much higher than compelling them to not do something. And I'll give you an example. Drunk driving. 
Drunk driving is a compulsion to not do something, right? We're saying you cannot drive and drink at the same time versus a compulsion to do something like you must, whatever, take this vaccine. You must pay this amount, right? There are big differences between behaviors that we bar and behaviors that we mandate. C-16 is a behavior barred. It is not a behavior mandated. They, so let's take an example. Let's say there's someone in your class and she's a transgender girl. And what I yeah. mean by that for people that are less familiar is that she was born a biological male. She realizes that she's a biological male, but her gender does not align with her sex. So she right. is a female by gender uh, and she goes by female pronouns. So she yeah. is a she, her pronoun person. She walks into Jordan Peterson's class. Let's say her name is Jenny for simplicity's sake. And she says, I want to go by she, her. And Jordan Peterson or any other professor, let's say they're Christian and they don't want to do that. Does that Christian have to address her by she, her? No, absolutely not. They have many alternatives. One thing that they could do is they could just address the person by their name. They could address the person as the student in the back. They could address the person by their last name. They don't have to use the pronouns of choice. The only thing that they are being compelled to not do is use the pronouns opposite of the choice. Misgender. Right. So Jenny comes in and Jordan Peterson goes, what's up, Jade? And she goes, no, 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 I'm I'm Jenny, not Jade. And he goes, no, you're a boy, you're Jade. She goes, no, please stop saying that. He goes, you're a boy and I'm going to tell you you're a boy every single day. Okay. That is what is barred by C-16. You are not allowed to harass people by purposefully misgendering them time and time again. And the bill is very explicit that a one-time violation will never punish you. It's only when you consistently and purposefully misgender the person that you will get punished. If you simply choose to avoid pronouns altogether, which is very easy, by the way, have I called you a he or a mister once this conversation? No, it's very easy to avoid pronouns altogether. So if you really don't want to use their pronoun of choice, I think that's super weird because why? But that's your right. You don't have to just call them by their name or some non-pronoun reference. You don't have to use it. So C-16 is not compelled speech. Jordan Peterson either fundamentally misunderstands this and shouldn't be talking about it, or he knows that and he's lying. And both of those alternatives are scary bad. Yeah, well, then you taught me something, too, because I watched... I did not do the homework you did specifically on the legalese, but I watched him read the C-16 bill on camera and I watched his hearings. And so that was the big thing where he was saying that if, and I think part of what he said is that I don't ever want to be forced to call anyone a he or she, if I don't agree with it. Sure. So if she says I'm a she and I don't necessarily agree with that, or I don't think she's earned that, then I don't want to have, and to your point, I guess he could call her her name, Jenny or Mrs. Smith or whatever it would be, but he didn't get into that. So yeah, no, I would agree with you there. I would agree with you there. And I think that that's, that's a piece of it. So let me ask you this then, because the the trans thing is so big Mm -hmm. and it's very, you want to talk about something that's really divisive in a culture. Hmm. Yeah. I, being someone who's employed people for years, and I've been out of the business world for the last four, to be clear, I've been a stay-at-home dad, and I'm going to be going back into the business world at some point, and the they-them is brand new, Mm -hmm. and the trans 
community as a whole has really, I think, gained some momentum as far as awareness and compassion and empathy as a culture, which is good news. Right. I think what's, I've seen pushback on a lot of things specific to uh, DEI training, like diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that plays into let's just say the sensitivity of this younger generation. And that's actually why I'm fascinated by you and Zachary and the younger generation in general, because I just don't connect. I'm mm-hmm. too far removed. Is that I think there's, and then from my friends on the right, I went to high school up in Santa Rosa, California, and I just went to dinner with a bunch of my buddies from there. And a lot of these discussions are like, dude, I, I don't even understand what I'm supposed to say anymore. Yeah. You know? And in New York City, as an example, there's 31 recognized pronouns that can be used that are now part of the state law. Right. And there's 71 total, I think. And so, I mean, there's just, it's so confusing as a group. And so yeah. I think I think part of that is, it's not just Jordan, but it's a lot of folks pushing back on that narrative saying, hey, you know, this is getting way too complicated. You guys are overly sensitive. These, these things called microaggressions and triggers and, I think it's nonsense and grow the fuck up. And, you know, like, because I've seen a lot of that, that swell is happening. And so do you think that that is pushing it to, oh, maybe a good example of this is that if you misgender a trans person, it is, it's violence perpetuated upon them. And that's where, that is a big narrative now in the culture. Right. Is that speech is now violence. Right. And and that was a huge piece of what uh, Dr. Jonathan Haidt is doing. Yeah, he speaks against that in, in all three of his books, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And and right. so what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, because so, to me, I... Yeah, I, I, there's a middle ground here, right? Where I think that some people do take things too far, where they, they pretend that any sort of speech that is offensive can be conflated with violence. And that's wrong, um, because it's not. Any sort of speech that you find offensive is not violence. Having said that, I think hate goes too far when he says that no speech other than, you know, inciting violence is violence. He basically says that the only speech that is violence is that that actively incites violence, right? Like, let's go kill these people is the only sort of thing that qualifies. I think that's too black and white. There is other speech that qualifies as violence. And let me give a good example. I'm not sure about 31 genders. Um... I, I, I'm skeptical that there are that many clean boxes. I think gender is a spectrum, but I've seen the list. <laughs> it's it's yeah. pretty, it's pretty exhaustive. The spectrum is very different than saying there are 31 distinct categories, right? Yeah. Whereas if I gave you like a shade of red and blue, we could easily see that it's it shaded from red to blue and that it was a spectrum, but putting 31 clean categories between that red and blue would be very hard. So I agree that gender is a spectrum. I'm skeptical there are 31 clean categories, let alone more. Having said that, misgendering people. Let's get back to that for a second. Mm-hmm. There is immense data, and I'm talking dozens of studies, that shows that general acceptance of transgender people, including but not limited to proper gender association with them and using their preferred pronouns, um, is causally connected to their suicide and depression rates. In other causally. words, causally, not correlated, not correlated. Causally. The, okay. the literature when it was young was just correlation. 
it has been shown to be causally connected. So misgendering people can very plausibly cause depression and suicide. And how do they, I mean, I've tried to find some causal connections. I haven't. How did they actually extrapolate that data to, to move from corollary to causal? Yeah, and I mean, this is a deeper discussion in and of itself, but one of, yeah. one of the ways that we, can, um, that we can tell the difference between cause and mere correlation um, are two things. Number one, it's uh, controlling of covariates. And for people that are less yep. familiar, a covariate is something that could uh, potentially be influencing both variables or could be interfering with your data, right? So like, let's say um, you say that people who own horses tend to live longer. Okay, owning horses probably doesn't make you live longer. So what's going on there? By the way, that's true. People that own horses do tend to live longer. So what's going on there? Uh, probably people that own horses have money because horses are really expensive. Money gives you better access to good health care. Correct. Good access to good health care makes you live longer, right? So the Less covariate, yeah. the covariate that is not being controlled there is the wealth that is associated with horses. So one of the ways that we can determine that something is causal rather than correlation is when we control for as many covariates as we can think of. You can never control for all the covariates because you might not know what a covariate is. There might be some unknown connection there, right? But if yeah. you control for like a dozen covariates that all seem to be the most plausible examples and the correlation still persists, that's a really good sign that it's causal. Another way that we determine causation is when we um, explore and gain a better understanding of the causal mechanism, right? So like, if it was like, hey, these two seem really correlated and we've controlled for like 20 covariates and they still seem correlated, but we just don't really know how it's influencing one another, that makes us more hesitant to say it's causal. Whereas contrast that with, hey, we've controlled for like 20 covariates and we know how that's probably causing the other thing, that's a very good indication of causal mechanism. So understanding of the causal connection, or at least the potential causal connection, the one in question, and controlling of covariates are two ways that we do that. In many of these studies, we have done both. In many of these studies, we have, first of all, explored the causal connection. I think it's pretty self-evident, actually. When you misgender someone, you are questioning their sanity. You're questioning their reality. You are telling them that who they know they are is fundamentally mental insanity. Yeah, that would make me depressed too if people told me that all my life. Yeah. Um, so the causal mechanism is pretty well known. And then the second thing is we've controlled for dozens of covariates. We've controlled for wealth, education, race, um, you know, rural versus metropolitan. We have control for all sorts of things and the correlation persists. So we never know for sure if something is causal, right? And someone could potentially still cast skepticism on the causal connection between smoking cigarettes and cancer. All we can do is continue to control for the covariates and see that the correlation persists and try to gain a better understanding of the causal mechanism. And as we have done both of those things, the correlation persists and the causal mechanism has become clearer. So we can fairly confidently say now that societal lack of acceptance is actually causing transgender people to have higher suicide and depression rates. And here's the crazy thing. In the few examples that we have been able to find where transgenders are surrounded by a supportive community, their friends, their family, their church, their business, all of them fully accept them, use their preferred pronouns, they have normal suicide and depression rates, right? Not zero, because everyone has suicide yeah. and depression rates, but they have the same exact suicide depression rates as people like you and me. In other words, we have 
erased it in certain examples. We have fully gotten rid of it simply by treating them like human beings, using their preferred pronouns. So, I, I mean, let me ask you, if assuming that's true for a second, assuming misgendering people can potentially cause an increase in suicides, does that qualify as violence to you? No, it doesn't. It qualifies as being mean. Okay. You know, and so to me, it's, it's, it's morally abhorrent, in my opinion. If you actually know someone to be identifying as a female and you call them out and tell them they're crazy and that they're mentally disturbed or that they're a queer or some other pejorative term, right? then you're just a dick. And your mean but, spirit. But what if you're? What if you I don't know. think it's violence. I well, because that's that's again, it's the bullet analogy. If 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 bullets are if violence, if bullets are violent, then we agree on that. Then words can't be violent because bullets actually tear through you and kill you. And a tr being triggered by words that cause depression and anxiety and suicide. Cause suicide. suicide. Yeah, I I I still I still look at it as violence. I look at it as. Uh, I don't know, hate speech, maybe. I, I think that would qualify under that because you're just, you're actually on purpose trying to harm someone's mental health. And that's For the record, from a legal perspective, hate speech usually qualifies as violence. It does. Like even in courts, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to learn all about this because I, I can't, yeah. for me, and violence always, is but physical. I guess from my perspective, I think a better, uh, I think that if you define violence as like physically altering their flesh and organs, and of course, speech isn't violence, but isn't that sort of begging the question, right? I think a better way to define violence is uh, causally uh, connecting your behavior with physical harm to them. Suicide is physical harm. You yeah. cause that to happen with your behavior. To me, that clearly qualifies as violence. Now, I, I think it's a fair question as to how well we know that causal connection, right? So if you want to press back some skepticism on the causal connection, I understand that. But I don't really see any room for skepticism if we accept that. If we accept that you are causing suicide rates to increase, I think that pretty clear, clearly qualifies as violence. Well, because some of the data, and again, I, I appreciate you sharing that, and I'll continue to dive into it. The one thing that I did see specific to suicide rates is that even the before the transformation, mm -hmm. the suicide rate doesn't change. So that's, no, that's incorrect. This it is incorrect. It drops dramatically. Okay. So I haven't, I have to redo my homework on that. Because there, there was I, a really poor study put out that compared the suicide rates of people that had gone through transition. I'm trying to remember exactly how this worked. It was the suicide rates of people that had gone through transition versus another group. And it didn't compare like and like. And it was widely touted and it said, look, okay. transitions don't work. And it was the only study of its kind and it completely made a fallacious leap. I'll have to go back and see. I apologize. I should have known that. No, it's okay. I should have cited some of this. Anyway, too. I, I will send you, there was a meta-analysis done of 55 studies that were done on things like primarily the effects of hormone treatment and, um, and transgender transsexual surgeries and okay. Of the 55 studies, 51 showed that it lowered suicide and depression rates. And I think two of oh, them showed fantastic. neither. So two showed that it increased. And so in other words, the vast majority of the data out there, and there is a surprisingly large amount of data that shows that um, transition does lower suicide and depression rates quite substantially, okay. actually. 
Okay. Well, that's cool. No, that's good to know. And, and I think that that's, like I said, as someone who looks up to Jordan Peterson's background, specifically as a psychologist and his books on psychology, I've always found very interesting. And, and but I think a, a big piece of that for him on the C-16 bill and the way he's gone about that, then that has changed my mind on, mm-hmm. you know, how he sees it. Do you, he also like Dr. Height and a lot of academics today think that this transgendered group will be recognized with their pronouns, but this younger class and they, they start this analysis from 2013. Mm-hmm. When did you enter college? Undergrad. 2009. Okay. Yeah, all of 09. So they talk about this as kind of a watershed moment. 2013, safe spaces coming onto college campuses for the first time. Yeah, and that's what green incident. Yes, and that's yeah. Brett Weinstein. And right. so that's that's a piece where, and again, I think a lot of this gets mixed up specifically in a culture that doesn't have a lot of time to understand all of these pieces and how they all work, the trans community as a young group, colleges themselves are standing up for the trans community. A lot of the younger liberal men and women are very supportive and compassionate. I think that's super cool. Sure. The evergreen example where Brett Weinstein was a professor who defended, I don't want to get too far into that, but that the idea there was Evergreen College had a day of absence that recognized a playwright, a black playwright, who told a story of the black people of the town not showing up that day and how they were missed. And Evergreen College, as an ode to this black playwright, decided they would have a day of absence on the campus. And the campus itself, they would go out and do something charitable and have that day of absence excused. And it was good for the community and it was good for the school. And then in 2017, they decided that they wanted to eliminate, or excuse me, exclude white people, both faculty and student body that day. And Brett Weinstein decided that he thought that was divisive. He thought that was a step too far. He wrote a memo to the faculty. He stood up at a faculty meeting and said, I think this is wrong. And then fast forward, he had 50 irate students storm his classroom and try to deplatform him and tell him he was a white patriarch and an asshole and a misogynist and all right. these terrible names. And this is all on camera. And this, this was part of Dr. Height's book, um, Greg Lukanyoff and Dr. Height's book. And that was the 2013, that's an example. And then there was other examples specific to like Milo Yiannopoulos here at Berkeley, uh, Ben Shapiro was also yeah. another one that was deplatformed. And that's where the speech violence thing continues to come up. Yeah. Right. So let's just take the trans community out of this equation. Right. That's maybe where it bothers me because the trans thing, it, I, the, the last thing I want to do is fuck up some trans person's already, you know, fragile mental transition. Right. Cause that's just, I, I have so much compassion for that. I was worried about pimples and you know, my hair at 16, right. not whether what gender I was. So that's a piece where I, as an older man, come across almost like, get off my lawn. You know, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm starting to grow. And this is why I like talking with young people is I'm starting to grow more irritated with the deplatforming. The deplatforming really bothers me. And I think that's part of Peterson's, you know, 
venom as well is that it's just you can't continue to say things like Ben Shapiro's speech causes violence because that was also the same thing that was happening at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Milo Yiannopoulos, I can say there's I've seen some shit that he said that I could see as, you know, yeah. way, way over the top. But what part of that happened with with the Berkeley thing was that there were a lot of progressive liberals that were filming themselves engaging in violence right. and and destruction and then said that the only way they can combat the violent speech that is being propagated on their campus is through actual violence. Right. And I was like, okay. And that was pointed out in the, in Dr. Height's book. And that's a, yeah. that's a bigger theme. I think for us that I'm trying to understand with this young group is that if my two boys who are you know 10 and eight at this point, and they came back from their freshman year of college and said that they needed safe space because there was ideological and emotional harm caused to them or that they were, they had had violent speech thrown at them and they needed, you know, to go to a place. And I think the most egregious example for me was Brown university that has milk and cookies and coloring books and soft music and pillows. To be fair, that sounds awesome. I love milk and cookies (laughs) and coloring books. So like our, is this younger generation, this 2013, according to him, and a lot yeah. of academics in general, are they pushing this too far with the safe space? Because I, right. I would agree with you on the trans thing. I, I don't necessarily, I'll look at the causal data, but I, I, I would tend to agree and I would tend to alter my behavior based on right. that. But with, right. with the converse, it's true with the young kids that are saying they need emotional and ideological safe space. based I, on Yeah, no, I think that I'll start by saying, I think that these are distinct topics. I think whether yeah. or not misgendering people can be qualified as violence is very different than whether or not Ben Shapiro can be qualified as violence. Um, I think that's a great distinction to be, yeah. that we can agree um, on. Yeah. So one thing that I want to preface this all with before I get into it is that this is not an endemic. And even uh, Jonathan Haidt says that in his book. He very clearly says that things like required safe spaces, things like the Evergreen incident are a tiny minority on college campuses today. And he does not see evidence that they are rising quickly. So Haidt himself says, this is not something that is widespread across college. It is happening, Um, but it's not something that is like, oh my God, every college in America safe spaces, right? No. And Haidt will even say that. He did say that, but that was 2017. And so the difference is since then, and this, you know, this as an academic, the academy itself has big thinkers and then those big thinkers theorize. And then those theories kind of, you know, leach into the culture. And so what in his, on like his presentations today, he started the heterodox Academy, which I think you're aware of. And it's 5,300 academics now that have viewpoint diversity meaning they're not just liberals, they're conservatives, liberals, they're from different countries, right. they have a different view of things. And so what he's saying now is that safe space stuff that started in 2013 has started to integrate that level of, or that theoretical belief into NGOs, nonprofits, uh, corporations, institutions in general. Right. I'm, see- I'm seeing that as someone who coaches executives, by the way. So I have media executives that I coach on the side and they do, they are dealing with these younger generation coming up and talking about all of these things in the corporate sector, which is triggers, microaggressions, and pronouns, all of that. 
Okay, but again, triggers, microaggressions, and pronouns are pretty distinct from things like safe spaces and deplatforming, right? True, but the safe space piece is that, and I had a, a, one of my other podcasts, I interviewed a former professor at Berkeley. I asked him, I said, if safe spaces are becoming more popular, and specifically liberal colleges, and you're right on that. So what they did highlight in their, in their research, it was mostly liberal schools mm -hmm. and all of the Ivies. And so let's just say out of, you know, thousands of universities, they're not, but it's starting to happen. And then the University of Chicago actually issued a memo to all of their upcoming students as this started to build and said, hey, there are no safe spaces here. We just always want you to know that right off the bat. So there right. are colleges now pushing against this. So it's it's not as fringe as it was four years ago. Let me just say and that. that could be true. Yeah, if it you know if it is rising, then that then it's it's much more worthy of discussion. But yeah, I, and when I read there's Heath's book. It was it was still quite the outlier, which was correct. But I think that that's because the younger generation is vocal, mm -hmm. and they're pissed, right? right? And and I think they have a lot of reasons to be pissed off. But I think that this is where we're starting to push too far on the, on the, I need safe space at college. Because to me, one of the biggest problems is with college is you're 18 to 22 and up. Yeah. You're adults. And so I understood it. One of the professors told me, he said, you know, it started out a lot with marginalized communities, trans people, uh, LGBT, black communities where they felt like they needed a place where they could go. And yeah. feel safe. And I thought, okay, that's kind of cool. I get it. But then it, it just seemed to me that it was going too far because you're adults. And so if you're in an adult environment in the world, if you will, and you're being marginalized, or you're being picked on, isn't it up to you to go find a community of people that you can talk with and go to a bar or go to their dorm? Or, you know, I, I, I just, to me, it seems like we are genuinely coddling a group I think, of kids. I think it really depends on, on what is causing the, the marginalization. Let me let me explain what I mean by that. So first of all, let me say college is not designed to be a place where you feel comfortable. In fact, no, it is explicitly de it's designed for the opposite. Yeah. College is supposed to make you say, "What the fuck was I thinking my whole childhood?" And not necessarily <laughs> abandon all those beliefs, but right. for you at least to put every single belief you had in your childhood in the spotlight. College is made to make you feel very uncomfortable. College yes. is made as a transformation, not as a place where you feel comfortable all the time. Having said that, it depends what is causing the marginalization. If your marginalization is being caused by a mean individual or a handful of mean individuals, then yes, I think your solution makes a ton of sense. Go find a different community. For the most part, just avoid those people. Yeah. But on the other hand, if your marginalization is being caused by something that is more systemic, so for example, what if you're a black person and only 10% of the college is black and you are actively being uh, pushed down by some systemic form of white supremacy, which unfortunately very much still exists today, including on college campuses, that's a different scenario, right? And so I don't know exactly how these safe spaces are being organized, but if they are being organized in such a fashion that they are pushing back against systemic marginalization forces, it's a little bit more of a case there. But that's also very different than the act of deplatforming anyone who disagrees with you, right? Yeah. You can simultaneously say, let's fight um, forces that are marginalizing us um, and let's let people who disagree with us speak. Um, and especially let's not violently force them off the stage, right? It'd be one thing if Ben Shapiro came to Berkeley 
and said, or whoever went to Berkeley and said, Hey, it was Ben. He went there. Yeah. He goes, Hey, can I give a speech? And the people who run Berkeley said, no, sorry, that doesn't represent our values. I think Berkeley has every right to do that. If Berkeley doesn't want to give a platform to Ben, they don't have to, but that's very different than Berkeley saying, sure, come on in. And then for Berkeley students to harass Ben Shapiro, it's like, no, 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 no. He already has a platform. If you think that it's wrong that he has a platform, go to the leaders of Berkeley and petition them to not give him one the next time. But it's too late now. He was already given one by the leaders. If you want to fight the systemic forces, you are fighting that for future events. Don't push him off the stage. That's going to make him look like a martyr. And it's only going to champion his cause. It's going to make his people feel stronger, right? So it's one of these, these weird things where I do think that as a country, we have a serious problem about giving platforms to people that don't deserve it, right? We'll be like, oh, here, we're here to discuss vaccines. And on the one hand, we have 10, you know, PhD research scientists. And on the other hand, we've got some quack from YouTube. Let's hear them debate, right? Right, right. We should not be doing that because it makes them seem like they have equal voices when they don't. This guy's a quack and nobody should ever listen to him. And we do that in less obvious ways too. I personally don't think Ben Shapiro has much of anything to say of value on any topic. I think that he is an anti-intellectual moron that shouldn't be given a platform. (laughs) But that's very different than saying, let's chase him off the stage, right? If he's already been given that platform, let the guy talk. He'll probably embarrass himself. And then we can talk about whether or not we want to give him a platform again the next time. So it's like, it's one of these things where I, I just think these students are going about it all wrong. I'm all for discontinuing the giving of a platform, but discontinuing of the giving of a platform is very different than actively robbing the platform from under their feet, right? Correct. I'll give you that. Yeah. And I think that's where, for me, we're seeing a lot of that's that kind of plays into the speech is violence piece. It plays into the safe space speech. It plays into right. the younger generation and, and this is what I'm seeing just collectively feels like they're pushing so far and there's, and it's, and no one's ever doing enough. I think that's kind of what I'm hearing from my friends on the right. Yeah. I know a lot of my friends are old, but maybe that's a good transition to a topic that I wanted to address earlier. So you were talking about how a lot of your friends on the right were like, Hey man, I just can't keep up. Right. 31 genders, they, them, he, she, this is just too hard. I've, I've spoken with my father extensively about this, who is, probably a little older than you. I guess I don't know how old you are, Joey. I'm 54. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So only just slightly older than you. And so, um, and he's talking, he said the exact same thing. He's like, look, I'm an engineer. And I, unlike you, son, I don't take an interest in this stuff. So I don't read about it on my free time. I can't yeah. keep up with all this stuff. And so I'll, I'll give your friends the same advice that I gave him while also asking for something from the other side. I don't think you have to keep up. Here's the good rule of thumb. When speaking to an individual, if there is any question whatsoever, simply ask them, what do you prefer to be called? If there's not a question in your mind, if you think it's super obvious and you get it wrong, right? If you go up to a person that's like, hey, that's a dude. And you say, hey, mister. And they come to you and they go, I'm not a dude. I'm a female. Then at that point, simply say, oh, I didn't know. I'm sorry. Sorry. What would you prefer to be called? In other words, the rule of thumb is always just ask the individual and they will tell you, you don't have to keep up with all the nuances, keep it on an individual to individual basis and respect the individual. It's not that hard. Now I promised that I would ask something from the other side. 
what I would ask something from the other side on is if you are a person where someone gets it wrong, not intentionally, they just made a mistake, be gracious. If someone comes up to you and says, hey, mister, and you're a trans woman, don't get in his face about marginalizing you. He just made a mistake. Simply correct him politely and say, I prefer to be called a female in the future. There's a huge difference between the guy who just made a mistake and the guy who says, no, I refuse to use your pronouns and I'm going to continuously harass you, right? Most of us at worst are just making a mistake because we didn't know better. And it's not fair to expect everyone to keep up with all these nuances. I do because I love these topics, but we shouldn't be holding that burden. So if you are someone on the marginalized side and someone clearly makes an innocent mistake, just be gracious and correct them. If they don't take the correction, then you can be a dick. But if they take the correction, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then it's just, then just let it slide, right? I agree. And that's, there's, that's the old principle of charity piece is that just yeah. assume that the other person is not attempting malice and forethought with an act, yeah. right? And so- I say that, by the way, because I have been in that situation where I have made a mistake, right? And, and it wasn't even a bad mistake. It was a person who I said, um, you know, he slash she slash they question mark, as in, please inform me as to what your pronoun is. And this person, I'm still not sure what, because the conversation basically ended, exploded at me. Because Were you online when you said that? Or are you talking? I was online. Yeah. And they're okay. like, I am none of those pronouns. How dare you assume that I am one of those three? And I was there like, you well, go. Yeah, I, it, it wasn't me assuming so much as like filling in. The I was trying to ask. Yeah. <laughs> right. And like, yeah. most people are one of those three. Like, yeah. sorry, what are you? And they never got back to me. And so I was like, wow, this is like insane. And so I walked away from it. That's the wrong reaction. Right. I was right. clearly trying. I didn't get it right. My bad. Just correct me politely and let's move on. So I, I, I get it. I've been there where people get way too aggressive about it. And that's yeah. not productive. And that's, that is actually, and this is also the media's problem because you see this at length. And I have a, I would, I lived out in Boston for a while and I have friends that went to Wellesley and, and there was an example at Wellesley college in 2014 that I laughed out loud when I read it. And it was, it was an example of this. It was an example of you can never be woke enough. And so it was a, Wellesley is an all women's college for people who don't know. It's a very uh, upstanding and scholarly university in Massachusetts. And because it was an all girls school, there was a young woman who had is transitioning and she identified herself as a masculine, queer leaning person. And she wanted to be identified as Timothy. And so she, and the neat thing about this was, of course, the university is very liberal and accepting. And so they accepted Timothy with hugs and friendship and everything was cool. So then they were looking for a multicultural officer for the student body election. And Timothy decided that he was going to run. And a lot of his friends were very supportive because if you're going to have someone in multiculturalism, this person who was gay and and trans and, you know, so, oh, wow, okay, you've experienced this is perfect. And so then the further they got down the road, then there was a whole other faction of the student body then that protested and Timothy can't be part of this multiculturalism because it would reinforce the white patriarchy. And so she was 
she was denounced and and then a whole another group came after her and so that was another story i was like yeah and and that's when you read that specifically as an older guy who's trying to understand some of this you're like yeah see like how far you, it's just never enough it's, and that's yeah. one of those things where you're like that's so frustrating to read because and maybe that's another segue because this is another jordan peterson thing do I was you segue to Dave Chappelle with that. I think that's a great segue to oh, the Dave Chappelle conversation. Actually, let's do that because yeah. we were going to get into that anyway. So th that, yes, let's get it. And because you, because I respect you, and when you put up there, I don't understand why this was a controversy around Dave Chappelle. Hmm. I said I laughed my ass off, right? And I watched it, and again, you know, full disclosure, I was pretty high, but I laughed the whole episode. I mean, I was howling, yeah. Yeah. and. And, and what I gleaned from it, specifically his story about his transgendered friend, Hannah, and how they built this relationship and then the sadness of that tragedy. I was like, yeah, you know, he, that proves to me that he's not, he doesn't have venom towards them. Right. I think you mean it Daphne, was, by the way? Sorry, the story, Daphne. The story yes. towards the end, yeah. Daphne. Yes. Um, yeah, so what, t tell me your about face on that because I- Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting- um, Okay, so what happened was, well, let me start by saying that the multicultural thing, I hate that. And I don't hate it because it's too woke, although maybe that's a problem too. I hate that because it was minorities butting heads with minorities. Yep. I hate it when minorities try to out-minority each other. So do I. Because it doesn't help them. It helps neither of the minority <laughs> classes that are butting heads. You know who it helps? It helps the oppressive right. class that they are yes. allegedly so against. Yes. When minorities fight with minorities, it's a huge help to the white supremacy, to the patriarchy, whatever oppressor class you see yourself as fighting, you're doing yeah. them a huge favor when you butt heads with other minorities. Yeah. Stop, right? And I know that this seems, this seems awful because I'm, I'm a straight, cisgendered white man and I'm telling minorities to stop something. So I, I, I'm fully aware. <laughs> you patriarchy. Yes. But I, I really <clears throat> can't stand when minorities butt heads with each other because it does great things for their oppressors. Um, it does. Having said that, so what happened with the Dave Chappelle thing is I hadn't watched the special. I saw oh, okay. an article by a right-wing outlet where it, it took a clip of his wording where he basically goes, I'm paraphrasing here, but he goes, gender is a fact. Um, now, I'm not saying that that means that a trans woman isn't a woman, but it does mean that, you know, the pussy she got between her legs is, you know, beyond pussy or impossible pussy. And I thought right. that was funny because it, it's true, right? If you are a trans woman and you have gone through a se uh, sexual surgery, and thus not only are you a transgender woman, but now you're a transsexual woman as well. Those are two different things. Right. Your vagina is artificial. There's nothing wrong right. with that, but it is artificial, just like there's nothing wrong with Beyond Meat. I love Beyond Meat, but it's artificial. And so it's like, okay, that's funny. And it's not offensive. It's saying what most trans people will say, yeah, that's true about us. Most trans people will agree. I was biologically a male, and now I'm gendered by a female, and my pussy is artificial, right? They're, that's, yep. they're not going to disagree with you on that. That is what transgenderism means. And so if they're a trans woman, what disturbed me was that they hadn't even focused on the offensive part. This is one of the problems with the right. Of course half not. the time the right <laughs> criticizes the left, they yeah. don't even know what the left is actually upset about. So the clip that they thought the left was upset about omitted wasn't the, the really offensive part. It was the turf part. The thing he said before yes. their paragraph that was in the special, 
is Dave Chappelle says, and this is in reference to a J.K. Rowling controversy. Yeah. Dave Chappelle says, I'm team turf. I agree with her. I'm a turf. Now, for those who don't know, a turf is an acronym for trans exclusionary radical feminist, T-E-R-F, trans exclusionary radical feminist. What that means is, is that you are a, usually a woman, biological woman who says trans women don't count. They're not women. They're not part of the feminist movement as a woman. They're not what they say they are. They are a man, period. So you are rejecting who they are. You are actively and by definition misgendering them. You are telling them that they don't qualify as part of the movement. That is harmful. Tracking back to what we talked about earlier. Correct. We're actively excluding them. Now, here's the thing that really upset me about Dave Chappelle. I don't think he knows what the term means because he says, I'm team turf. And then three sentences can't later. can't be team goes, turf if you're a man then, right? <laughs> well, no, you can, but, but you can't be team turf if you think trans women are women. And so he goes, I'm team turf. And then three sentences later, he goes, no, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean trans women aren't women. What? Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, you are saying that. You just, So right. I think Dave Chappelle probably doesn't know what the term actually means. I think that he used it in reference to J.K. Rowling and didn't know what it means. Having said all Possible. that, it's still harmful because he's still getting up in front of millions of people and telling them, I subscribe to a movement that excludes all you women from being women. I'm getting up in front of millions of people and telling millions of transgender women, you don't count. You're not part of this and you're not women. Now, if he misused the term, surely he has heard about that at this point. Just come out and say, my bad. I used the term wrong, Right. right? And so it's, I was so, I think I'm more frustrated with Dave's lack of humility in his probably mistake than I am with him originally saying it. it it's one of these things where it's like, I don't think you meant that the way that it came across, but it still factually came across that way. And now that you know that it means something else, which you have to by now, just apologize. Like it's really not a big deal. Um, people are not asking for your career to end. People are just asking for you to recognize that you said something wrong. And the other, so that was why I about faced, right? Because the, the right-wing article, it didn't include the turf part. And then I read more about it and I watched the special. I was like, oh, he said he's a turf. Now I get it. The other reason that I was really frustrated with Dave Chappelle through that whole thing is that Dave constantly uh, pits minorities against each other. The whole special is him saying transgender yeah. people Your struggles have not been as bad as black people's. Therefore, stop complaining. He even says at one point in the end, I've been telling you trans people, don't complain to black people about your struggles. It's like, really? Like, because black people have had it harder. Let's just assume that that's true for a second. Because black people have had it harder, trans people can't complain about their struggles to you? Like, why? Who does that help when you pit minorities against each other? Or at one point in the special, he's, uh, he's talking to Hannah, um, who's in the bar. She's the girl that uh, he meets her mom first, right? Yeah. And she comes up with two black guys. And uh, somehow they get into it and Hannah goes, my people have struggled for decades. And Dave Chappelle makes a joke about looking at the black guys and saying, is there something you want to tell her? Implying, maybe you should inform her that my people have struggled for centuries, right? So again, he's belittling the struggle of trans people just because he thinks black people have had it harder. It's like, even if you're right that black people have had it harder, 
why should you use that to belittle the struggles of other minorities? Shouldn't that make you come together and say, look, we both struggle. We should both be trying to prop each other up. We should both be trying to end these systems of oppression. We should be trying to educate cis white people, right? Why does Dave Chappelle use that stuff to pit minorities against each other? I just, and, oh, and here was the worst part. All uh, special long, he identifies as a black man and his jokes are based around him being a black man, which is fine. But then at the end of the special, he applauds Daphne when she says, I am a human being having a human experience. So he applauds Daphne for leaving her minority status at the door after touting his minority status, the whole special, as if black people should tout their blackness, but trans people should really just, you know, be people. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why, why does your minority get to tout your minority status all the time, but you applaud other minorities when they leave their minority at the door? He sends the message constantly throughout his special that his minority struggles more than another and his minority matters more that this minority should really just stop complaining. They've got it good. And I just, I found that to be so immature. That's and I say point. that as someone who agrees with him about black people struggling. I'm a huge proponent of, you know, spreading information on systemic racism against black people. I fully agree with him that black people struggle a lot, but that doesn't mean that we should belittle the struggle of other minorities. And that's where he gets accused of punching down. And that's where he gets accused of being, yeah. Um, I hear that. And I actually, I, I just finished a podcast a couple of weeks ago with talking about critical race theory with a black female educator mother. Mm -hmm. And we got into the Chappelle thing and, and briefly. And I said to her, Is, do you think he's got to burn his saddle about trans people feeling marginalized and feeling oppressed and the swift, which I think is swift, empathy and compassion for them as a group right. you know, from the culture and, and that 500 years of oppression, he has a point. And she said, no, I don't think so. She said, black, black people love Dave Chappelle and we always will. And the reason we love Dave is that he has been pointing out the oppression between white people and black people since the day he started comedy. Yep. That's his thing. Right. So he's always going to point that out. And the biggest oppressor is all y'all. That's what she said to me. She said, you white people. And, right. and, and she said, so that's where he comes at it. And that's where his humor comes. That's why he is on purpose. You know, he's a modern day Lenny Bruce, right? In that sense where he's attempting to piss Sorry, off. Maybe my youth. I've never heard that name. Yeah, he's just, he's a, it was a comic who was arrested for profanity back in the day, like in the okay. 50s and 60s. Uh, Richard Pryor being another one of those people that was pushing the limits, you know, uh, at the time. And I think Chappelle as a comic, as a genius, in my opinion, as far as comedic genius, he is using his platform to point out the, the nonsense of mm -hmm. what we were talking about, this woke culture, this white, oversensitized, you know, melodramatic people. Because I've, I've watched him on numerous different right conversations about that and so for me that's what i was trying to get to with my friend i was like is that it because you know and to your point i didn't really get the turf thing till just now and that was an example if you look at feminism in general that's another thing where i think that's difficult because it's not just dave that's pushing back right there's numerous examples of second wave feminists that are really 
not accepting. They, they will call them trans women. You know, if you look at like the Camille Palias and the Christina Hoff right. Summers they, and the they, Julie, they Julie Bindels. You, you don't qualify as a real woman, right? Correct. And they say things like, you've never menstruated. You've never been pregnant. You don't have a period. You haven't suffered through, you right. know, all of these things. So it's not fair for you to call me a woman. And there are numerous examples. There's a great book called The Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray. And he's a British journalist who categorized this movement as too far. And that's right. where Dave, Dave believes that too. And so that's kind of, you know, it's the same thing that I'm seeing with a lot of people that intellectuals, comics, which I think are one and the same because comics are intellectual. But that's where you're seeing, you know, the example I gave you with Wellesley. And then there's examples with in, you know, there's another woman named Susan Moore who came out and talked about she's a lesbian. She's a second wave feminist. She's defended feminism for 20 years. She came out and said something to the effect of I. Well, <laughs> she got upset and here's what she said. I don't have a problem with men disposing of their genitals, but if it does not make them a woman in the same way that shoving a bit of a vacuum hose down your 501s does not make you a fan. So that ended her career, by the way. <laughs> she mm -hmm. was a journalist and she was deplatformed forever. She apologized, but it was too late. Yeah. And so this type of venom from the community at large against people who dis who cannot accept, it's not that they won't call you a trans female, but they're basically saying, and these are feminists. Camille Pelli has gone crazy on this of late. I just read yeah. her recent book and I've watched her on numerous, you know, online functions, one with Jordan Peterson, where she's like, no, you know, it's the same thing. She said the feminists are now fighting each other and hurting the cause. Right. And, to be and, fair, I think it's a minority. I think most most feminists are not TERFs. Most feminists welcome trans women with open arms. I would think so, too. But I would say that this older group of feminists, the that ones could, be, been, could be a generational thing. Right. It is the older the older group, the ones that I, the Julie Burchells and the Susan Moores and the Camille Palias and the Christina Summer or Christie Hoff Summers. I've read their literature. I've read what they've talked about. And that is also where it's difficult if you don't have time, like you and me who are interested in this shit. Right. You know, you read about it and you're like, okay, so I get it. And and now I get more what you're saying. Cause I didn't get the well, but think think about for a moment really what, either. Think about for a moment what those second wave feminists that you reference are implying when they say that, oh, you've never menstruated, oh, you weren't born with a vagina, oh, you've never been pregnant. What they are implying is that the things that make someone a real woman, quote unquote, um, are biological. That's not just a rejection of the gender identity of trans women. That's a rejection of transgender ideology as a whole. Transgender ideology says that what makes you a man or a woman is not biological. So if you claim that to be a real woman, you reduce it to things like biological processes, you're not just rejecting a handful of trans women. You're rejecting everyone in the transgender community at a fundamental basis. I mean, I, I fail to see how that's not prejudice in a huge way. Yeah, I'm with you. And I guess I, for me, it's, I think to your point earlier is that I have no problem with any of it in the sense of I'll call you whatever you want to be called. I'm cool with all of that. Right. Then, then you start to get into the fight. And this is also a big pushback from science and intellectuals and the, all the people we mentioned. If you are a 
gender is fluid. I don't, I, and I have, I've rarely, I mean, I've, there are people on the right who argue that, but it is fluid. Sex, I've read up to 12 different sexes now, depending on how people are categorizing sex. Yeah. And so to me, you know, there's, there's a list that I have in here that I put down just because it was the intersex population is about 1.7% of the population. Right. More than redheads. Correct. And then there's the Kleinfelder. There's adrogen insensitivity syndrome. There's partial adrogen insensitivity syndrome. There's classical right. congenital hyperplasia. There's late onset antral hyperplasia. There's vandal agencies. There's, you know, blah, 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 blah. There's tons and tons of them. But the, the, the question that remains specific to like the Olympics, right? Is are you a man or are you a woman? Mm-hmm. And in that case, we have to have some clear delineation on that. Right. Not necessarily for, for you know, anyone can go to an office and be trans, female, trans, male. It doesn't have anything to do with effect. But when you start to look at, like for me, I was a martial artist for years. And so I fought in competition. And the one thing we never, ever did was have men fight against women. Right. And there's reasons for that. Right. It's the same thing that took place with, and this was an overreaction on the, on the female side, when John McEnroe made a comment about Serena Williams being the best tennis player ever, excuse me, the best female tennis player ever. And people were really upset by saying, how, why would you delineate that? Why would you make, why wouldn't you say she's the best ever? And he said, well, she's not the best ever. She's the best female ever. And you know, a a 2000th ranked college player division one could beat Serena Williams. And he got a bunch of flack. And then it was, and it's true, by the way. So then she comes out in defense of him and says, oh, guys, just to be clear, if I played Andy Murray, he would beat me 6-0, in about six minutes. She said, so men are stronger, faster. They're so powerful. They hit so hard that it's not enjoyable. And she right. said, and I don't, I don't play, I play girls because I don't want to be embarrassed. So, so that I, was I, a huge, like a big thing in the gender side. And then getting back to the fighting side, it's not okay. It's yes. There was a woman named Fallon Fox who was a trans female who did not disclose that she was formerly a male. Right. And she crushed someone. She actually physically broke her face, right? right? Like her, her orbital socket. And the reason for that is females. I don't know what you'd call them, but like, uh, in utero female or a natal female has less bone density, shorter bone structure, softer. Right, right. They're softer. They're just different. And right. so, so when she's hit by the compression the shit out someone who has had testosterone flowing through their body. Right. Yeah, I get and, it. And you can't alter that. Right. It doesn't matter so, if you take estrogen and start. So where, where does that then go? Where does the, if there is no delineation, I, I love the gender fluidity. I'm cool with that. But where do you draw the line on, on male, female when it comes to like competition? So let, let me make, I guess, two points because I see them as distinct. First, yeah. let me say that I, it is the biological consensus that sex is not a strict dichotomy. We treat it as a dichotomy mostly for simplicity, but most biologists will very easily tell you, no, sex is not a clean dichotomy. So that is pretty much you know, well accepted among the relevant scientists at this point. So they're right on that. Having said that, that's a different question than- Well, let me ask, let me, let me ask you that. So I've done, the homework that I've done on that specifically are evolutionary biologists. Yeah. 
And everyone says that, and I mean, I need more homework, but I've, I'm, I'm referencing people like Carol Hooven, who was an evolutionary biologist at Harvard, Brett Weinstein, Heather Hying, uh, a young man named uh, Craig Colin Wright. There is a dichotomy, which is male-female. And then there's derivatives based on anomalies. So if you look at when we talk biology in class, and this is a reference they use, we teach students that they have 10 fingers and 10 toes. Right. Because most of us have 10 fingers and 10 toes. The same thing stands true with, you know, Kleinfelder as an example, which is a, a derivative of sex. And well, that's I'm one out of every- with that, But I think that they're, they're bastardizing the term anomaly, right? Because, I mean, think about it. Intersex people are more than 1%. Imagine if someone said, well, hair color is a dichotomy. You're either blonde or you're brunette. It's like, well, what about redheads? Well, they're an anomaly. What? But, well, but they I, represent I, millions of people, but there are less redheads by percentage on the planet than there are intersex people. Are redheads just an anomaly or does it represent a trichotomy? So it's like, how, how can you say it's an anomaly when it represents literally millions and perhaps tens of millions of people? That to me, that seems like a totally unfair of the term anomaly, right? I mean, in the sense of it's a minority, absolutely. There are not that many intersex people compared to biological females. There are not that many intersex people compared to biological males, but there are right. more intersex people than there are redheads. Unless you're going to say redheads don't count as their own category, that's just an anomaly. How can you possibly say the same thing about intersex? That's a great point. And what I think I'm trying to get to there is that where do you draw the line then? Specific to so, sports. Right, with sports, right? Because I, yeah. I agree with you. There are, there are meaningful biological differences between biological males and biological females, and they have very important implications to sports. I, I am of the perspective that separating the sports by sex makes sense. Biological sex makes sense. Having said that, I think that the problem is being overplayed. Yes, there are examples like the unfortunate woman's face who was crushed in, and I'm not trying to justify that whatsoever. But I think that these examples are rarities, and here's the reason why. Transgenders represent 0.6% of the population. Among transgenders, not all of them ever sexually transition, right? So right. a transgender person doesn't necessarily go through any sort of surgery. And you would have to go through, at a minimum, a surgery to qualify for the other sport. Transsexual, right. So a, a fraction of 0.6% play in sports. A fraction of that fraction go on to play in, in any sort of sport that is at a meaningfully competitive level, right? Something above high school. I don't think any of this really matters for like high school. So we're talking about a it's fraction of yeah. a fraction of 0.6%. And then even among that fraction of a fraction of a fraction... How many of those are going to result in something disastrous like the caving in of the face? Yeah. So it's like, do I think that that is a problem that could be solved by, you know, delineating between the biological sexes? Yeah, probably. Do I think that this is a pervasive problem that is going to result in lots of terrible injuries and thus is worth all of the political fighting over it? No. It's, it's one of these things where it's like, it could result in something problematic, but how many times, right? Yeah. Transgenders no, have probably been crossing sex lines by the thousands for years now. And we have to think of a couple of isolated examples where it turned out wrong. It's like problem, sure. Big problem, no. Very true. No, I'm with you. That's, that's a great point. And I think that that's, 
I think the bigger problem then is that how it gets puffed up in the media and both, both sides of the equation, because right. that is where the discussion is alive and well. Right. I think that that's, yeah, no, that's, that's really, that's astute, dude. I like that. Cause I, I genuinely trying <laughs> to lose my grumpy old man stuff. And right. I think that just, just diving into these things helps me understand like, Oh, wow. It's a really good point. My brother is very liberal. He's a progressive and he's a law professor. And he said the same thing you just did to me. Uh, he said, you're thinking in all these abstract terms and these macro visions, and they're not. Is if you break them down to the isolated pieces, you can call someone by their name because he teaches, he's a law professor. He said, if I had right. someone, he said, I wouldn't worry about that mandate because it's stupid. And he said, so if I have a class, I memorize their names. I just call them by their names. And if like so, most if teachers so, do. Exactly. Right. He said, so I don't know why this is even a thing. Right. <laughs> like, that's a really good point. So, and and, and maybe know. this is this is something that because I actually do have to go here in about five minutes. Maybe this is, is kind of a good way to to transition, because I think it's it's something that that Steven Pinker, he dances right around this topic and he's so close to it, but he doesn't apply it to himself. Right. Steven Pinker, he constantly talks about how history has been shaped by people who questioned dogma. And he's a huge proponent of enlightenment thinking, right? The Protestants questioning the Catholic dogma, the scientists questioning the church dogma and the Aristotelian dogma, um, the feminists questioning the male dogma, the um, abolitionists questioning the slave dogma, right? He's all about history progressing by ideas that begin by saying what we were doing might be wrong, right? Right. And he loves it. He talks about how it's benefited the world in so many great ways up until today. But then he's hypercritical of people right now. In other words, if you are 40 plus, 50 plus, whatever, you have already been raised. Your beliefs are probably already cemented um, in a society that you were developed in. Guess what? The progressives of the younger generation are going to question your core assumptions by necessity it will happen to me in a couple of decades it's <laughs> happening to you right now yeah. you did it to your parents right this yeah. is how progress works is that people question the older generation not all of their questions are valid not all of their questions are going to lead where they think they are but the younger progressives pushing back on the assumptions that we hold dear is not a bad thing it's a good thing for them to push back against the older generation and say maybe what you took for granted isn't right. And so I'm not even saying that you should kowtow to their beliefs. I'm not even saying that every time a so-called woke young person says, hey, everything that you thought you knew about this is wrong, and it's actually this way. I'm not saying you should say, yeah, you're right. I'm saying you should say, huh, despite the fact that that is so foreign to me, I'll think about that. Because right. I did the same thing to my parents, and I was right a lot of the time. So maybe you're right about this. Not necessarily maybe right no this is great and this is exactly why i enjoy talking with younger people because i i need to get out of my box i need to understand what your generation is thinking and why they're thinking it and you did exactly what i anticipated you would do you taught me things that i needed to be taught and you broke it down at a really neat understandable level specific to individual treatment versus the macro narrative and i think that was really applicable for my brain to kind of grok, grok, you know, some of these, you know, I think bigger 
controversial topics in our culture. And I know you have to go, but this was great, dude. And uh, I'd love to yeah, have you back. I, I on wish it. I had more time. I, I do. Uh, this has <laughs> well, been. We could, I, I can bring you back and talk about other if shit. If you want to do point. a round two, I'm super down for that because I feel like we just scratched the surface. On Actually, you, let's do that. I have, I would like to get your take because I have some pretty strong beliefs on critical race theory. Um, love it. Love it. Being yeah. a good thing. And then I've, I've had some, yeah. And then uh, we talked about defund the police for a little bit and you liked that phrase and I'd love to get your take on that too, as far as that goes. So let's do a round two, but this was, this was fantastic. And thanks again for your time. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.